Welcome in. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I want to welcome you in to our Faith is Time Together, where we challenge and encourage and stretch each other in God's direction. It's where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we're trying to develop that kind of confidence. We're trying to remind ourselves and to learn in the fabric of our being that God is trustworthy, and so we challenge each other. And, and we challenge each other about a lot of things, because here we think out loud, and, and I don't know if you caught it, but I used a phrase I've been hearing out and about a little bit, and I started noticing it, and I thought, hmm, that's interesting, where it happened once, and then I noticed it happened again, and then it happened again this past week, and it keeps happening, but this phrase has kind of developed a life of its own, I guess, and crept into our way of greeting each other, but you go into a business or an office, and people will say, welcome in. And I at first thought that was a little strange, and I still think it sounds a little strange because I'm not used to it. But I want you to know you're welcome here. You can agree with me. Some of you might be tempted, and you might even yield to that temptation to scream back at me as I'm talking. And that's okay. You're welcome here. Whether you agree with me or not, whether you follow God or not, we're glad to have you here. And I want you to know you're always welcome. So to use that I think overused phrase and expression these days, welcome in. But we've been talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've been following the development of that idea through the people that God is forming for himself. And we're reminding ourselves that Abraham was the first person. He entered into covenant with God. Then he had a son, a son that was promised by God. He had him when he was 100 years old, when it was impossible by all regular, ordinarily understood means. He and his wife, who was very old as well, had a son. So we have Abraham and Isaac. Isaac was the son. And then Jacob. Isaac had twin boys, Jacob and Esau, and the line of God's people continued through Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them was Joseph by a lot of processes and really terrible things that happened to him. He ended up in Egypt as a slave, ended up in prison, and then ended up in the palace as second in charge of all of Egypt. Only Pharaoh was above him in rank. Joseph was the number two guy in all of Egypt, and he had gotten to that point because he interpreted some dreams that helped save the lives of many people, including his family, from starvation and a famine. You can go back and read all those details there. Well, the family, the whole clan, the whole tribe, his father and his brothers and everybody that was related to them, moved to Egypt to, to survive the famine. Kind of made sense. Well, it made sense then, but Joseph's father died, then Joseph died, and finally a new king, a new pharaoh, appeared in Egypt, and either he didn't know, which is the way the Bible says it, or refused to acknowledge, or whatever. There's no doubt he denied that God's people, Joseph's family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I should maybe say Jacob's family. He denied that they were an asset and began to be afraid of them, turned them into slaves. God talked to a man named Moses, rescued him remarkably as a baby, sent him to Egypt to get the people out of there. Moses talked to Pharaoh. You've probably seen a lot of that. They finally got out after many plagues and much travail. They ended up at the edge of the Red Sea, with Pharaoh's chariot company, 600 of them, bearing down on them. 
going to crush them, but God miraculously parted the waters. They went across on dry land, and Pharaoh's army was decimated when they tried to do the same because God put the waters back in place, and they were all killed. Well, they continued to travel, and they had their ups and downs, and a surprising number of downs because of their complaining and so forth, but they managed to get quail and manna because God fed them, and that was a good thing. They managed to complain about water, and God gave them water, but they named the place after their griping, we could say. And yet God continued to work with them. I mean, you might be asking, why did God choose such difficult people? Well, I don't know if they were any more difficult than anybody else that God could have chosen. Because if you're honest, you look at the way they behave, and we can see a lot of reflections of ourselves in their behavior. So let's not be too critical. Let's just learn from their lesson. Well, God finally led them to a place called Sinai. And he there on Mount Sinai gave the people what we call the Ten Commandments. Now, there's more to what happened than what we're going to get into, but I wanted you to at least have a context for the story of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are widely appreciated in these days, and we're going to talk about them. We're not going to begin to do anything more than scratch the surface, probably, and it may be like drinking from a fire hose, all the things that we can talk about with the Ten Commandments. But I want to make sure we understand where they are in the story of the Bible, but also what's the theological significance of what's going on here? Well, we've long said, and I've reminded people, it it was kind of, uh, I, I remember when I began to think about it this way, kind of an amazing revelation to me that here, And I don't remember anybody saying this when I was a kid, when they taught us the story. But here's God's illustration in the lives of his people of how he saves people. And it was the idea that God would save people from evil. And here's his big story that had lasting impact for this deliverance from Egypt, from the evil of slavery, was celebrated every year by God's people that what we call Passover. Yet we fail to sometimes make the connection that what's going on here, and I think it's it's probably because we have distanced ourselves way too much from our Jewish roots. These are our people. The New Testament talks about those of us who are Gentiles as being engrafted into the tribe of God's people. And so because he has included us, these people are our people. And we need to not run away from that. We need to embrace that and figure out what we can learn from that and give thanks that that the God who started covenant with Abraham now invites us in. And we're invited in through a process that we call salvation. Well, it goes by a lot of names, but that's really what God is illustrating with getting the people out of Egypt. He's illustrating his salvation. And he repeats that idea over and over, and you'll see it again when we get to the scripture. He repeats the idea that he got the people out of Egypt, and he doesn't want them to forget it, and he doesn't want us to forget it, because God is the one who saves us from evil. Well, a few weeks ago, we were talking about that a little bit here at church, and and I'm the pastor. In case you didn't catch that, I'm the pastor, and maybe I didn't say it earlier, but here we go. I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and we were talking one Sunday. I'm not quite sure why I brought it up, but I think I brought it up, and we were talking about all the different ways we describe 
what generally is called salvation. Well, it's not just called salvation, but that's probably the word people use most often. But we began to explore what are the different ways we describe this idea that Jesus saves. You'll see that expression out and about a little bit, Jesus saves. The whole idea is salvation. Well, we sometimes refer to it as being born again, and that has been popular over time. Jesus' statement, you must be born again, is where we get that. We talk about being redeemed. In other words, there was a price that was paid to satisfy the problem of sin, and so we're redeemed, and that is related to our salvation. We talk about that God comes to forgive our sins, and so we use the idea or the expression of being forgiven. All of those things refer to the same basic idea that God wants to to rescue us, and there's another way we say it, from sin. Almost every way we describe God's saving work has to do with this idea of salvation. We sometimes use the word deliverance. Now, I remember years ago, it was really popular, I mean years ago, but this is back in the 60s. I was a kid, but there was a song, it seems like we sang rather frequently, He is able to deliver thee. And it was all about that God can and does and will deliver people from evil. And we need to celebrate that. God is the one who delivers us. These days, we sometimes refer to salvation as being made new. Sometimes we refer to salvation as as being or getting right with God. Sometimes we refer to salvation as being made whole. God comes into the brokenness of our lives and makes us whole. Sometimes we refer to salvation as being saved by grace. Same idea. It's just referring to the fact that God extends grace to us. Now, it's also related, and in some respects, people, I think, make this correspondence to the idea of repentance, the idea of change. Change your life is what repentance is all about. We connect that with this idea of being saved by grace and say that salvation is yours for the receiving. That is what God does for us. And and truly, the story of Exodus is what God did for the people. They didn't save themselves. They didn't fight Pharaoh and win. They followed God and he fought for them. He delivered them from that evil. And so I don't want us to forget or lose sight of the whole idea that this story that culminates now in the Ten Commandments is somehow separated or disconnected from from important things that we describe in other ways. This really is the story, the, the Old Testament story, the story of God delivering people. And we can learn a lot from that story. Well, two things that we should take away at this point to make sure we don't forget about this story, and it kind of helps us locate them in the in our understanding or in this the big picture story that God is revealing to us is one yes he brought them out of Egypt he rescued them from slavery he delivered them from that evil he does that for people who turn to him and he delivers them from evil he forgives their sins he gives them a whole new life that's what the people got a whole new life, no longer no longer subject to the cruel demands of Pharaoh. They had a whole new life. So that's part of it. And that's what we often think about, that God gives us a new life. But what else did God do? 
not only did he get the people out of a very bad situation, but he was leading them to a better place. And that's where I sometimes think we get hung up with this whole idea of salvation. We get hung up that, well, it's ours for the receiving. It's a free gift, all true. But God does not deliver us from evil to just say, continue on any way you want to go. No, he gets us from something to something. And a lot of times people give up on God because they think, well, they prayed a prayer or they heard somebody say something about it. And so they said, that's a good idea. I I like that. But they never consciously, purposefully changed their lives. If we give lip service to God, but it makes no difference in our lives, why do we expect our lives to be better? No, God is now teaching his people, not only can I get you out of a bad situation, but I'm going to teach you how to be a holy people. And we need to understand that that's part of the context, part of the the story that God is teaching his people. See, they were in slavery. Now they had to learn, how do we get along with this God that delivers us from evil? How do we become a holy people so that we can live with God and we can relate with God? And the Ten Commandments is a big step in that direction. Now, the Ten Commandments has a really interesting, uh, how should I say, imprint on our American consciousness. We, We hear people battle over posting the Ten Commandments and people will say, well, when they took the Ten Commandments out of schools, that's when everything went down. Well, maybe. Uh, Certainly, taking the Ten Commandments out of schools didn't help anything. But we have all these battles about posting the Ten Commandments. And and they are posted in remarkable places. For example, did you know, you probably did, that the religious imagery of the Ten Commandments is posted in this United States Supreme Court building? Newt Gingrich, in his book, Rediscovering God in America, reminds us that that they're at the center of the sculpture over the east portico of the Supreme Court building. He continues, inside the actual courtroom, finally engraved over the chair of the Chief Justice and on the bronze door of the Supreme Court itself. So the, the Ten Commandments are posted at the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land. And we argue and we fight and we should defend the Ten Commandments being posted. It's not government endorsing religion by any stretch of the imagination. We've been fed that idea, and too many people have embraced it, but it's just not so. But, and here's what what gets to me. We can fuss and fume and advocate for and defend the posting of the Ten Commandments in every place you can imagine them being posted. But you know, that's fine as far as it goes. But God didn't give the Ten Commandments for us to post them. He gave the Ten Commandments so we would follow them and actually do what he says in those Ten Commandments. And and I listen to people and they get real upset and they go on for a long time sometimes. I guess sometimes they go on for a long time like I go on for a long time sometimes. But they go on about this idea that the Ten Commandments were taken out of here or taken out of there. And I wish, can I say it this way? I wish that we were as concerned about living the Ten Commandments 
as we are about them being posted, presented here, there, or some other place. So keep that in mind as we go through here that these were not given so we could post them on a wall someplace. They were certainly significant and remain significant. Just do a little bit of study and you will begin to find out there has been much work done to understand them, explain them. I guess I'm saying I hope that you will take as seriously not only understanding them, but living them. Not only wishing they were posted out of school or in every child's classroom, and that'd be fine with me. I don't think that violates anything. But what's really more important is do the people of God actually live them? So let's take a look with that in mind, and we got a lot of ground to cover, so let's plunge right in. First thing I want us to understand is that in the book of Exodus, which is where we get the story of the Exodus from Egypt, we have the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. There are also other places in the Bible, but primarily we look at Exodus chapter 20. Well, Exodus chapter 19 precedes 20. Well, now that's quite a revelation, isn't it? I'm sure you knew that. Well, Exodus chapter 19 talks about the covenant. Remember, Abraham and God entered into covenant, and now God is reminding the people of the covenant relationship they enjoy. And covenant, it's very important for us to keep that in mind, covenant is the way God was explaining to the people of how they relate to him. And he didn't change his mind, by the way, with the New Testament. I think that's another underappreciated concept, is this idea of covenant. that helps us understand God and our relationship to him. Well, covenant creates a new relationship. In the same way when someone is, and let's use the phrase born again, becomes a follower of Jesus, becomes a Christian, they enter into a new relationship. They become people of the covenant, we could say, because the covenant didn't go away. It was just completed and remains after the coming of Jesus, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that was a significant fulfillment of the promise of God and a significant continuation of the covenant. So covenant creates a relationship like when we become a Christian. And then in chapter 20, where we have the Ten Commandments, God gives us the law that regulates that relationship. Every time in ancient history, when people entered into covenant, they had covenant requirements. And they pledged one to the other to live according to those covenant requirements. That is what God is doing here. He's having these covenant requirements made explicit so that there's no doubt, so that we understand what's going on. So to begin with, we need to understand that God is introducing us to this idea of covenant and law. Covenant begins the relationship Law tells us how we're supposed to get along with God. Now, the other thing we want to notice is that in the Ten Commandments, we see God giving those commandments directly to the people. Now, as you follow the story of God and his people coming out of Egypt, you'll, you'll notice, and you may have already noticed, that many times God's instructions are given to the people through Moses. God will say to Moses, tell them this, and he tells them, and that's what they do. In other words, his instructions don't come directly to the people. They come 
to the people through Moses. But here in the Ten Commandments, God is direct. He is speaking directly to the people. He's not going through Moses. And it's very interesting the way the, the scriptures put that. And it's important to, to notice that because God doesn't want any misunderstanding here. So he's coming directly to the people. It's also interesting that, that he says you in Exodus 20. And you'll hear that when we read those in a minute. God says you. And that you there is singular. Now, many times in the New Testament, and you may have heard me say, and, and it's, it's exactly the way we need to think about it, many times in the New Testament, when we read the English word you, we need to understand that as plural, because God is talking to his people, not just us as individuals. But here, there's no doubt, because the original language is clear, that this is a singular statement, you. So he means it for you personally. All right, so he's brought them out of Egypt. He's redeemed them. Now he's forming them into a holy people by telling them, this is how this works. Here's what you do. I got you out, so you know I'm God, and now I want you to do this. Now, this is very direct language. This is not a place where you argue with God or equivocate or do anything else. You just do them. They're not open for debate, for discussion. They're absolute commandments. They don't go away. And we, God's people, are expected to do them. Now, he gives these commandments based on his own authority, and, and we get that idea because he said, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. So he's, he's asserting himself as the one who has authority to issue these commandments. And they would have understood in a covenant relationship like this, where there was a greater and a lesser party, the greater party got to set the rules. And so God is giving them the rules, and he expects them to, to be obeyed because of who he is, not because of fear of punishment. Now, to be sure, there were problems when they didn't obey, and those things unfold in the rest of the story of the people of God. But this is not for fear of punishment. It's based upon, look, I did all this for you. This is the least you can do, sort of. Although he doesn't say this is the least you can do. The implication is God is the authority, and he expects us to do it because he's God, not because we're afraid of punishment. Now, it's also interesting that in this particular set of commandments here in Exodus chapter 20, there's no corresponding set of penalties to this. Now, I learned very interestingly in working with the Florida legislature and trying to advocate for certain laws to be passed, that the legislature sometimes would pass a law, but there would be no penalty to it. They would pass it and everybody say, yay, they passed the law. But too many people failed to realize that a law without a penalty is just a statement on a piece of paper. It really doesn't mean anything. For example, in Florida, the law says every school district in every district building is supposed to post the Florida state motto. The Florida state motto is simple. It simply says, in God we trust. However, it has no penalty for failure to post that. It just says you should do it. Now, because there is no penalty, nobody feels obligated to do it, and so it just doesn't happen. It did very interestingly in one Florida school district. The superintendent turned it into a fun learning experience for the students, and they had a contest to develop the posters, the, the plaques, whatever they were going to use to put up in the school and the students could make a design, and, and whoever won would get their design posted. Well, that was a clever way to teach students the Florida motto is, In God We Trust, and it followed the law. 
Now, it's also interesting, and we should keep this in mind whenever we think about law in the scriptures. You probably remember that Jesus summed up the law when he was asked by his challengers, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, well, the greatest commandment is to love God with all you've got. You can look at Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. He says, love God with all you got, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. I've heard it said, and I haven't gone through every law in the Bible, you might want to take that on if you've got a lot of time and a lot of interest. Just sampling and checking here and there, and it's true in the Ten Commandments, seems to me that you can find a place for anything that God says for us to do that fits under this idea of either loving God or loving neighbor. And so when we look at the Ten Commandments, we can remember that God's expects us to love him with all we've got and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so when you look at the Ten Commandments, you can discover that some are properly categorized as demonstrating love for God and some are properly categorized as love for neighbor. Both ideas are very significant. Yeah, I guess here's where I could editorialize a little bit. You know what I think people have gotten caught up in today and are making mistakes in the way they follow God and, the, and faithfulness. See, God expects us to be faithful because he's God. And because we trust him, we can be faithful. Because if he says do it, it must be for our good. It must be for the well-being of the people, of us and others. And people have kind of focused on love for neighbor or family or themselves and forgotten that Jesus started with love for God. And this is something that you should notice as we go through the Ten Commandments, that he gives some specific things that are demonstrations of love for God. If we aren't putting God first, and this is a challenge, and I, I kind of sense that God is up to something with this, that he really wants us to pay attention and put him first in ways we haven't thought to do. Well, before we go any farther, let's read the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read a little bit more than just the commandments because it's in the context of the whole chapter. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We'll start at verse 1 and end at verse 21. From the New Revised Standard Version Updated Edition. Here we go. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, 
and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female, slave, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. Then the people stood at a distance while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Well, you heard that last part. The people said uh, to Moses, you speak to us, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They understood something about God, didn't they? And that reminds us again, these are commandments directly to us, the people. And we should not forget that. We should take them seriously. God specifically wants us to understand, and he specifically wants us to pay attention. And he specifically got our attention because he came down and all those. Did you get that last part? We didn't even talk about the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. It was a, an enormous display of God's presence. And of course, God's presence is another important theme throughout all of this, but he's definitely present here when he gives them his instructions. And we're going to take a look at each one of the Ten Commandments, not in a lot of detail, but in maybe some things that you hadn't thought about, And we're going to challenge ourselves to keep the commandments, not just hear them or post them, but to keep them. Come back in a moment. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. 
Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news, delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back in. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm so glad you're with us here on Faith Is. I'm glad you stayed, because now we get to the real issue. What is it that God is telling us to do in the Ten Commandments? We talked about some introductory ideas, how to categorize them a little bit. But what is it now that God speaks specifically to you and to me that we should do? Now, some of them are very straightforward, not complicated. Some of them involve a little bit more than what we realize because of our distance from the ancient world, shall we say, our unfamiliarity with that. And, and we'll touch on a few things that maybe are new to you. But by and large, without question, if you will read the Ten Commandments, you can understand what God wants you to do. So we'll get into a little more detail, but don't make any mistake. God is not tricking you or setting you up to fail. He wants you to know this is what he expects. Because remember, this is a covenant relationship governed by, regulated by the law. So the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, that refers to the relationship, and God has said to us he's exclusive. No other gods. And by the way, this isn't about an act that we would commit this is a focus on a relationship that he wants to have with his people. He wants to be their God. He wants us to turn to him when we need his help, when we need God. He is our God. He wants to be. Now, you might say this is a peculiar thing for him to say, particularly since they just came out of Egypt. Well, maybe, and you wouldn't think they'd have any trouble at this point, but we know the rest of the story, and repeatedly, God's people were tempted to worship idols, and they actually worshiped them. And so this is an attempt by God to prevent that. It's also a, a, a real statement that they would have understood maybe differently than we do. It speaks of possession. People in the ancient world had different gods in their possession, so to speak. Well, God is not some, someone we can contain as our possession, but he wants to be our God. He wants us to say, well, what God do you serve? We serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We serve Yahweh. We serve the God that was revealed in the Old Testament and the God that is revealed to us in the person of Jesus. He wants to be our God. Commandment number two says, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Sometimes we use the word graven image. Well, that's fine. That's 
just simply another word for an idol. And this command speaks of something that we might do but should not do. It says don't make or craft or manufacture an idol for yourself. This is very important because God's people did not have idols in the temple. I would have liked to have seen the expression on Nebuchadnezzar's face when he was given Jerusalem. There described in the first chapter of Daniel and went into the temple and looked around for the idol for God's people, the the idol that they served, and he found no idol. He took the sacred temple vessels, but he found no idol because they didn't make one. They were told not to. Now, we kind of think, well, if an idol is just nothing, why does God make such a big deal out of it? Well, certainly he made a big deal out of it because he recognized the temptation that his people would face, and they did, and he had to keep them out of trouble. As they got farther into the story, and as they got farther into following him to the promised land. But one of the things that we don't grasp is the way idols were viewed in those days. Uh, a divine image was, was in those days understood as having some mediatory function. In other words, the, the idol was, was somehow a way for people to get in touch with the God. And, and that would some, some ways signify that God's presence there. And, and remember, other people, groups, and families had images, household gods, nation gods. And so the idea was that uh, God didn't want that because he didn't want them to to think of him in that way or to see his presence that way. Or, you know, that in some respects, when you had that idol, that was your possession. Now, when people, the other thing we don't understand and, and aren't aware of, in, in ancient times, when people would craft an idol, they would have a ceremony, a ritual that they would go through that would intentionally and purposefully invite the God to inhabit that idol that they had made. And and God didn't want any part of that. He was far above that and beyond that. And, and those rituals, again, kind of made that God that person's possession. And God didn't want that. He he wanted people to recognize that he was God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that delivered them from Egypt. And he did all of that. And he didn't need an idol for the people to see that. And so this is a very distinctive statement that we and they and none of God's people should make idols for ourselves, things we worship. One person I read said, we we got to be careful not to worship the things that we use or to make, uh, 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 no, wait a minute, how did they say? He said, we sometimes worship the things that we use and make them idols, and, and then we try to use God in that, in that same way. Well, God does not want us to, be, to use him. He doesn't want us to conjure him up. He wants us to understand that he is the God who reveals himself in the way he does, so no idols. The third commandment, you shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. Now, often we have understood this to say, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And that's fine. That's a, that's a fine way to say that. But there's really a little more to this idea than vain, or we sometimes think of it as in coarse language or profanity. 
and and I don't think that God's people should have anything to do with using God's name that way. Uh, there are a lot of common expressions that people use all too lightly, and I don't even like to mention them because I, I agree that we should not talk this way. But I want to bring this up to, to challenge you to think about your own language, because remember, God wants you to, to honor him. He's first, no, no idols, and then honor his name, use his name properly. And, and it, it, really, it, it really points out the danger we, we are in in our time when, when the phrase, are you ready for this? Maybe you need to sit down. Okay, now you're ready. We hear people all too often say, oh my God. And it has become an expression that people use frequently. Now, you might use that expression reverently in some cases, but people aren't using it that way in a lot of cases. It's just an everyday expression. And I think that's dangerous. I think we're, we're using God's name disrespectfully at that point. It may be an expression of horror, and there may be some instances where you say that and it is a call for God's help. I get that. But I think you also understand that when we use it tritely, like we so often do, that's dangerous. Even using the initials OMG um, on text exchanges or whatever you might use it, I think that's, that's really a line we must not cross. And we need to revere God's name. When you look at the, the text more deeply, you, you find that Really what he's saying here is don't use God's name falsely or frivolously. And I think some of the things we use are frivolously. Some things we use are profane on our face. And sometimes we refer to God in ways that that don't correctly represent him. And so we're using his name falsely. Don't use God's name falsely or frivolously. We are to honor God's name. How do we honor God's name? By the way we live, by the way we talk, by the way our whole lives reflect that he is the one to whom we give allegiance. You see, this idea of allegiance is important in all of this because what God says, no other gods but me, that's allegiance. Who is your allegiance to? Is your allegiance to God and God alone? Don't have an idol. Well, do you have competing gods of some kind? No, God says, I want you to have allegiance to me. That's the whole idea of believe in the New Testament, is allegiance. Here, when we talk about his name, we need to honor his name by the way we live, by the way we talk. And if you don't want to do that, then please don't claim the name of Christ. Don't claim to be a Christian. But if you are a Christian, honor God's name and handle it carefully. Do not use God's name falsely or frivolously. So that's commandment number three. And by the way, there are a number of ways that these commandments are numbered. And I think what I've chosen here today, you'll recognize this the way we usually number them. Number four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now notice that it says, keep it holy. So the Sabbath day, what we understand to be Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus. I know we call it the first day of the week. That's because Jesus Resurrection corresponds to the first day of the week. Does no violence to the commandment to understand that. No violence to the scripture to understand that. Now, if you keep a different day than Sunday, actually God seems to be okay with that too. 
one day apparently is okay with him and another day is okay with him, but make a day holy. Now he says that the Sabbath day is some is a day we are to keep holy. We don't make it holy by what we do. We keep it holy by what we do or don't do. Now I said earlier, and you probably recognize that God is developing a holy people. And that's an important concept in this appointment, we could say, that God meets his people here at Sinai. So Sabbath has been important to God for a long time. It's, it's mentioned more often in the scriptures from the time of Sinai and beyond than the other commandments. It's mentioned a number of times. It's very significant. In fact, it's mentioned in the creation account that on the seventh day God rested. So we need to understand that this idea of Sabbath is very important, and it's apparently very important to God. It tells us that there is a day that God has given us that is holy, and that we need to honor that day. It's a primary commandment to God's people. It's a commandment that we are increasingly taken for granted. We're, we're taking it for granted way differently than we did before. And years ago, we didn't take it for granted because the law said everything needs to be closed on Sunday. Well, it made it easy for people to, to act differently than they do today because the store wasn't open. Today, they're all open. So the question for us is, because the Sabbath is holy, what do we do to keep it holy? And it's a very challenging thing for us, and I'm one of the first to resist legalistic ideas, but I'm also one of the first to say we are not really paying attention to making the Sabbath day holy. We're treating it as, well, it's the day we go to church. Well, most of us, I hope you do. But we're also treating it as kind of the day we catch up on this or that or the other chores. We need to think about what God says, how to make it holy. And, and you know, people struggle with this idea of holy living. Well, if you struggle with this idea of holy living, start with Sabbath. How do you live your life on Sunday? Because it's a holy day to keep it holy. Now, I have that struggle. You have that struggle. How do I? Because that's one of my most intense days as a pastor. Well, how do I? keep it holy? Or do I need to do something on a different day to keep it holy? How do I, how do I demonstrate that? And you see, part of what's going on here is a testimony. People might say, well, well, why, why don't you do that? Well, it's because this is a holy day and God has asked us to keep it holy. And God comes first in my life. And so I'm going to keep it holy. And I don't let other things interfere with that. Now, can you imagine that testimony to people who think you're nuts? Well, good. I think, I think that's part of the idea is for them to think you're nuts. So it gets their attention. So they might actually take God seriously. And isn't that what a testimony is for, is to get people to take God seriously? And, and if we understand that God is both forgiving our sins and forming us to be a holy people, then if that's part of that, and it is, then shouldn't we embrace it? Or, or are we just, we don't want to be a holy people. We just want fire insurance because we don't want to go to the hot place. Well, 
I think for too many people, it's that. They just, they just want enough of God to keep them out of hell. Well, that's a very, very dicey proposition. So let's not get caught in that. And Sabbath is an easy way for God's people today to make a statement to people who don't take God seriously that we do take Him seriously. Now, it's also interesting that uh, this is one of the commandments that that is definitely not a do as I say, not as I do. This is... Um, This is a commandment where God did it first. Back to the creation story. On the seventh day, he rested. See, God sets the example. And way back then, it was important to him. And yet we tend to say, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm I'm forgiven. I'm born again. And we go on and on and on. So we we just need to to think that through and, and... I want to encourage you to, to make some specific choices about Sabbath. You know, how can you, how can you keep a day that is already holy? How can you keep it holy? And, and to be sure, a primary way of doing that is showing up to church. You call yourself a Christian? Good. Show up to church. Well, but I don't, you know... You can make all the excuses, and I know church situations can be difficult. But I have every confidence that if you want to find a church that you can attend on Sunday to keep God's day holy, you can do it. Let's just stop with excuses. Let's do it, okay? We can do that. We can honor the Sabbath day. We can keep it holy. Well, it sounds like I've gone to preaching. Well, I have a little bit, haven't I? Well, commandment number five, and and I think we're going to make it. Commandment number five is pretty simple. Honor your father and mother. Now, in our day, culturally, seems like, and it's been this way for many years, people don't have too much trouble honoring their mothers. Well, it doesn't mean that every mother was mother of the year. I'm not suggesting that every mother was faultless. But we seem to have an easier time honoring our mothers and a harder time honoring our fathers. But God didn't say, well, honor your mother because it's easier. And well, when it comes to your father, maybe not so much because that old scoundrel. Well, I hope I exaggerate, but I think some people get caught up in that thinking. Now, as a father, as a son, as a person living in the real world, I look around and Guess what? I have, I, have, I have difficult news for you. I haven't found yet the perfect father or the perfect mother. Everyone does the best they can. But the commandment doesn't say, if your father and mother did what pleases you, then honor them. It says, honor them. And I think that's a very interesting thing, because if we honor our parents there's a much better chance that our children will honor us. And we need to teach our children to honor their parents. Teach them when they're young. They get a little older, it's a lot more difficult. But we can teach them. Now, here's the other really interesting thing. That word for honor is also used other places in the Bible for glorify God. So God is here saying to us, In a similar way that you honor me, you are to honor your father and mother. And that means while they're alive, 
and it means after they've gone to be with the Lord. We don't have permission once our mother or our father has died to trash them or to tell people about the things they did bad or to complain that they're the reason we're the way we are today. No, we are to honor them and never stop. Doesn't mean they're perfect. That's not the point. It means we honor them. Commandment number six, you shall not murder. Well, if anybody doesn't understand that one, I'd have a hard time getting through to you. That just means you don't intentionally kill someone. Now, there's a lot of talk, and you can get into a lot of details about unintentional, accidental, those kinds of deaths. I get that. This is talking specifically about don't murder someone. Of course, you remember Jesus said don't even get angry with someone. And that's important because I suspect and can't prove that a lot of people who have murdered another person started from a point of anger. And so Jesus is trying to get at the heart. But that's pretty simple. You shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Now, this is pretty important and pretty significant. One person said, and and a lot of these ideas that I'm getting are coming from a man named Victor Hamilton, who's done enormous work, brilliant guy, writing about Exodus in a number of of places I've consulted. Uh, He comes out on top. But he says, it's interesting that this thou shalt not commit adultery comes after the command not to murder because in effect, when we commit adultery, it's murdering a relationship because we have violated a covenant relationship between two other people. And it really is a violation of a sacred bond. Now, Victor Hamilton says that he knows of no people, no code that speaks of adultery as an excusable or virtuous act. And that's that's really something we should take to heart. When he says that they, they're, nobody thought it was a good idea, we should take that to heart today. Too many people think it's a good idea. And it's really stealing something that's part of another. It's really getting between a relationship that God has established. And it's not at all something we should ever participate in. Shall not commit adultery. Finally, or not finally, but next verse 8, you shall not steal. That's pretty obvious too. Don't take what isn't, isn't yours. I mean, that's that's a that's a terrible violation of, of someone. If you've ever had anything stolen from you, you understand that it's not just the loss of the thing. It's the loss of the, of the privacy, the invasion of things. And number 9, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Well, don't lie. And that has to do with intentionally misrepresenting. And notice it's linked to neighbor, and it has damage to the whole community when we lie against our neighbor. It breaks the bond of civil society, and we should not allow that to happen. It's a good thing when we can trust our neighbors. And I've talked about lying before. We're not talking about the colloquial way people use the word lying, which is entirely wrong when they misspeak. We're talking about intentional misrepresentation. And finally, number 10, you shall not covet. And this one gets to the heart of things because it gets to the idea of our inner thoughts and desires. Is that we would desire someone else's spouse or someone else's property. And God says, no, don't do that. Don't covet what they have. See, he doesn't want us to have a relationship based on fear, but he does want us to have the reality that we need to to obey him. And understand that fear is obedience to him. 
And, and it's good that God makes his expectations known. He's not capricious about that. He makes it clear. But he also makes it clear in the words of Jesus, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And when we have that kind of fear, respect, awe of God, it helps us, it motivates us, it points us, it gets us to the place where we will live the Ten Commandments, not just post them. I'll see you next week. I'm Pastor Rick.